scripture reading today begins in Matthew chapter 7, which just finishes up the Sermon on the Mount as we saw last week, and here's what it, verse 28 and 29 read, where the Lord reads, when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go and show yourself to the priests and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion then came to him and asked for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one to go and he does, and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subject of the kingdom, they will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, Many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. And this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took our infirmities and bore our diseases. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin? Father, we ask for clarity of your word. We ask for conviction of your word through the power of your spirit. Not emotional guilt, conviction of the Holy Spirit that targets our affections. Father, help us to stop loving stupid things in this world that have no value, that are fading and passing away. Help us to realize we have just very, a very short time here to live for you, and then it's all of eternity, living out the consequences of our lives here on earth. So Father, we ask that we would have our affection for you be above all things. We ask that we would not value even good health, but that we would value you. So that when we're in the midst of pain and suffering, that we would not turn our gaze from you, but realize that because of the cross, you have brought the full redemption needed for us, the full healing that is one day coming. Help us now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Once upon a time... There was a king who sent his son to live away from the castle in seclusion. Why? To protect his son. 
This king had terrible enemies, and so he decided, him and his wife, it would be best to send their son away so that his enemies wouldn't know of his existence and plot to kill him. And so the king entrusted this young boy of his to his closest advisor. And the boy departed to grow up, never even knowing his true identity. For if he knew that, he might give it away, and then he would be found out. Years later, though, the young prince's father died suddenly in the night, and because the boy had been hidden away from the rest of the world, there was nobody in line to be king. The boy himself didn't even know that he was to be king, and so consequently, there was no heir to the throne. However, the people needed a king. And so a challenge was laid out. A large stone was placed outside of the great cathedral with a sword that was inside of it with the inscription that said, Whoso pulleth out this sword from this stone is the rightwise born king of all England. And so the challenge began as contenders would come from all over, grabbing the hilt of the sword and attempting to pull it out and claim the throne as their own. However, unknown to the contenders... This advisor was no normal man, for he was a man named Merlin who had taken the boy and then, put, before the contest began, put a powerful magical spell upon the boy and the sword so that only he could pull the sword from the stone. Only he who was worthy and who had the authority to sit upon the throne would be able to pull it. And so approaching the stone, after so many had failed, the young boy reached out, grabbed the hilt, and pulled the sword cleanly out from the stone, revealing to all around that he alone had the right and authority to sit upon the royal throne as king. Church, in Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount ends with an important question. The question is this, what gives him the right to talk like that? What gives him the authority? Who does he think he is to say these things? And you remember verses 28 and 29 we just read? It says right there in it, for Jesus was teaching as one who had authority. And that made the crowds astonished. See, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was making some really big claims, some really big claims, some astonishing claims. And you remember these claims, right? Not only did Jesus come along, he's like, hey, you know what? Your guys' whole understanding of God's law, you don't have a clue, right? He came and flipped it on its head and showed them how they were woefully short of God's law. And then if that wasn't shocking enough, Jesus came and he told them, hey, you know what? That whole fulfilling God's law thing, you're not going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm not here to abolish the law. I'm here to fulfill all of it. Every jot, every tittle, every single part of it will be fulfilled through me. That's a really big claim. That's a really big claim. And going along with this really big claim, is another even bigger claim, which Jesus keeps alluding to and getting at, which is that a person was only eligible to enter the kingdom of heaven. How? By faith through Christ. That's it. Every other path led to destruction. See, Jesus wasn't telling people just good advice, right? This isn't just you know, Dr. Phil, you know, hour with like, hey, here's what you should do. Here's what I think. No, this was, this was not good advice. Jesus was coming along and he was telling people what God himself said. He says, here's God's thoughts and you need to take this seriously. And this astonished the people. And that astonishment is understandable, is it not? Because some of these big claims are big claims and big claims require what to be believed? Proof, evidence. See, if I stood here and I said, hey, you know what? 
Tell you what, church, I got a message from God, and he told me that if you each give me $5,000 in five years, I, through his providential sovereignty, will be able to turn that into $5 million and give it back to you. Would you believe me? Wait a minute, you said no quite quickly there. Why? I mean, I'm your pastor, right? I'm a nice enough guy. Why wouldn't you believe me? Because that's a big claim. Big claims require big evidences to be believed. No matter how nice the person is, right? They require big evidences to be believed. And so the question here is this. Are there evidences that should lead us to believe Jesus' big claims? Not everybody does. So why should we believe what he's saying? Are there evidences to back it up? Matthew certainly thinks so. Which is why in chapters 8 and 9, what Matthew's doing, he's showing Jesus' big claim credentials. He's showing the evidences for why we should trust in what Jesus is saying. And the evidence is what? What's the evidence? Miracles. Not, not fake little you know, tricks, like without a doubt, eye-shocking miracles, huge miracles. That's what Matthew is going in to explain what Jesus does to back up the claims of what he said on the Sermon on the Mount. Because as we just said a minute ago, those claims on the Sermon on the Mount, those are not little claims. Those are big claims. Now, before we jump into what these healing miracles were that Jesus did, right, because those are the evidence for believing his big claims, we need to stop and ask, does Jesus' healing miracles alone prove his authority? Is that it? Like, hey, this guy, this guy raised people from the dead. He made the lame walk. He made the blind see. We should believe him. Is that the basis by which we believe his big claims? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. For miracles themselves are not proof of divinely inspired authority. They're not. Why do I say that? Because the Bible says that. Before we look at why this is the case, first we need to recognize that in the Bible... What is prophecy? It's not my thoughts. It's not my ideas. It's not good advice. Prophecy is God's thoughts and revelation. It's his words. It's what he thinks. 2 Peter 1.21 tells us this, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but how? Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. How do we know, then, if that prophecy is man's words, or God's words carried along by the Holy Spirit. Signs and miracles, right? Well, in part, but not fully. Not fully. Why? Deuteronomy 13, we find the signs of a true prophet. Here's what it says. If a prophet or dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, that's a big miracle, okay? And the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. Then what? Verse 3. Don't listen to him. Don't listen to that prophet or dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then verse 4. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, what do you do with them? Put them to death. Because he has taught rebellion against the Lord, your God, who has brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord, your God, commanded you to walk, you shall purge him from your midst. You see what that text says? 
It's rebellion against the Lord God to stand up and say, I have a word from God that's not from God. That's a serious thing. Now, today, we don't stone you for that, but the same thing is true. To say, God told me, when you don't actually have God's words, is rebellion against God. And so simply, ha- and, and so simply having miracles to back that up, that alone is not enough to trust what that prophet or dreamer of dreams is saying. Even if someone does remarkable signs and wonders, even if what they predict to happen happens, but they do not lead you to worship God as God calls you to worship, back then they'd stone them. Today we don't, but we are to disregard them. We are to call them out as a false prophet because that's what they are. Do you know another reason why we don't take miracles as being an absolute sign of divine authority? Think back. When God sent Moses to Pharaoh and Moses did the miraculous signs, you know, had the staff, threw it on the ground, turned into a snake. What did the false prophets there do? What did Pharaoh's magicians do when they saw that? Same thing, right? Was that God's power by which they did that? No, it was not. It was from Satan. It was demonic power by which they were able to do such signs and wonders. And there's another thing. This, is, this happened back then, but this is coming again in the future. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 tells us how Antichrist will be empowered by Satan to perform all sorts of miracles and signs and wonders. Why? In order to deceive the people. And so we cannot trust signs and wonders on their own. They are not enough. Also in Matthew 24.24, it reads, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray even possibly the elect. The existence of demonic miracles is one of the reasons we must test all the spirits as 1 John 4.1 tells us to do. We're not just supposed to believe it because it's like, oh wow, that was neat. What a, what a miraculous thing I saw. No. Demonic power could be behind that. And so we must test the spirits. For any time what is being taught does not line up completely and perfectly with God's written word, it is antichrist. And so it must be rejected, even if it is accompanied with miraculous signs and wonders. And so this brings us back to Jesus, right? We see that Jesus' powerful miracles were only a part of what demonstrated his authority. They were absolutely important. Don't get me wrong. They were absolutely important, but they were only a part of it. And here's why. For what Jesus taught, it fully fit with God's word. Fully. And the other thing is what Jesus lived fully fit with God's word. And finally, the powerful miracles then that Jesus did absolutely demonstrated his divine authority. So all of those have to be together. And if we don't, we're in for some trouble because there is a kingdom of darkness that is able to do signs and wonders, that is able to lead God's people astray if we are not careful to follow God's written word. And so with that in mind, the three healing miracles that we see in our passage this morning, they do reveal some things about Jesus' divine authority, okay? And here they are. Here's what they reveal. The The healing miracles of Jesus show his authority to cleanse, they show his authority to judge, and his authority to bear. Let's look at that first one. The healing miracles of Jesus show his authority to cleanse, and we see this with the leper. And when it comes to these three miracles, right, we see three individuals and then a whole bunch of people at the end healed. But the three people that we see healed, these are quite unlikely people to be healed. Why? The first one's a leper who was ceremonially unclean, 
right? They weren't allowed to go to temple worship. The second one, who did he heal? The centurion. It was a Gentile, which is somebody who was ceremonially unworthy, right? They were not of the people of God. They were Gentiles. And third, he heals a woman, Peter's mom or mother-in-law, right? And someone who at that time was considered ceremonially ceremonially a second-class citizen, right? Because it was not like equal between male and female. Females were considered second-class citizens. And so the first man who comes to Jesus for healing is this leper. And if you know anything at all about leprosy, you know this is a nasty disease. Like, this is a big deal. See, for the longest time, people thought that leprosy was a flesh-eating disease. Why? Because of how it would make the body parts decay, fall off, deformed, all that kind of stuff. But it's not. Leprosy is not a flesh-eating disease. In fact, what it really is, it's this basically bacteria that you get inside your body that attacks your nerves. And so when it attacks your nerves, your nerves stop working. And so there's literally people who have leprosy who will pick up boiling like cups of water, and they won't even realize they're burning their hands off by doing so. Some of them they found where they would wear their toes off from their shoes because their sandals or whatever didn't fit right and they would constantly rub against it. Whereas us, when we have our nerves working, we feel that. So when I step, I'm like, ooh, that hurts. But not for them. They keep walking and walking and walking. The other day, they look and their toes off. Some of them would have rats gnaw their fingers off in the middle of the night, not even knowing because their nerves weren't working because of this nasty bacteria that would prevent them from feeling things. And if that wasn't bad enough, this disease was incredibly contagious. So much so that if you got leprosy, you might as well as kiss your family members goodbye. Well, not literally because you don't want to give it to them, but you weren't going to be living with them anymore. You'd be out living in a leper camp. And whenever somebody would come by as you were out there, you'd have to shout, unclean, unclean. You'd have to leave your family and your friends and be isolated from the rest of the world. Can you imagine how awful this would be? Like, imagine today if, like, you know, you came to church and you're like, this is a great day, and then all of a sudden you look down at your hand, you're like, oh, I better get that checked out. Go to the doctor's office tomorrow and find out your life is completely different. You're leaving your friends. You're leaving your family. You're going to basically tent out with a bunch of other sick people for the rest of your life. Awful, awful thing. This was a disease that was horrifying. A disease with absolutely no cure whatsoever. Now today, leprosy is rare, but it's still around. It's, in fact, it's called Hansen's disease. And while it's rare, thankfully, it's actually treatable. But it does require taking antibiotics for upwards of two years to get rid of it. But back in Jesus' time, there were no antibiotics. There was no cure. And so here comes then Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, this miracle worker. And what did he do throughout his earthly ministry? He healed people. He basically eradicated sickness and disease in the area that he was ministering in throughout his earthly ministry. And so can you imagine this? During a time when the average life expectancy was 35 years old, That means Jesus got the senior citizen's discount when he went out because he was, what, 30 when he started his public ministry? Like, we don't think of that, things that way today because, like, we have pretty good health and medical fields that help us deal with disease, but not back then. Yeah, today we have cancer and heart disease, but you don't see people, children, constantly going deaf because they get bacterial infections in their ears that can't be dealt with. You don't see people dying all the time because of what we say, see today as now easy-to-treat diseases. But today, we have antibiotics, and back then, they didn't. So back then, sickness was a whole—I mean, it's bad enough today, right? Like, a lot of us have sickness and disease, but back then, I mean, you're, 
A lot of people, most people were falling over at 35 because of the sickness and disease. It's a terrifying thing then to come down with leprosy. And so here comes this leper to Jesus, approaching him, saying, Lord, would you heal me? It's remarkable, too, how this man approaches Jesus. How does he approach him? With great humility. He bows before him and calls him Lord, and then he says, if you are willing, Lord, you can make me clean. He recognized Jesus' authority to cast that sickness out of him, right? In which Jesus responds by reaching out his hand, and what does he do? Touches him, which was how you got leprosy, right? You touch another leper, typically. And so Jesus reaches out, touches the leper, and says, be clean. And then from that moment going forward, the leprosy slowly went away over about a year and a half, and the healing was done, right? No. It was immediate. Boom. Right then and there. It was restored. It was gone. He was healed. And if you think that this is just a nice story about how Jesus cares for the outcast, how Jesus cares for those who are suffering and hurting, you're missing the big picture here. See, in the Bible, leprosy is a graphic illustration of sin's destructive power. And God often uses leprosy as a radical divine object lesson. When a person came down with leprosy, they had, as we said, they had to live alone. And and if anyone came near, they would have to cry out, unclean, unclean. A leper was considered not only physically unclean, but spiritually unclean as well. And that is a powerful picture of what our sin does to us. It makes us unclean. Sin defiles us and makes us unclean before a holy God. Sin separates us from a holy God, just like a leper would have to live outside the camp. We too are outside of God's camp. Sin makes us unable to feel its destructive effects, just as leprosy does not allow our nerves to feel the destructive effects of things that we may do to our bodies. And so, like leprosy, sin eventually results in mass spiritual deformity. And just as a leper looks abhorrent to us, so too does our spiritual leprosy look abhorrent to God. It's hideous. It's ugly. It's nasty stuff. And just like the leper needed to come to recognize his great physical need for healing, so too do we need to come to recognize our great need for spiritual healing. And once we come to actually see that need, to come actually to see the deforming effect that our sin has upon us, that's when we will go to Jesus as the leper did, and we will cry out like the prophet Isaiah did, Woe is to me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips." And I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. There's a similar response here when we look at the Apostle Peter when he recognized who Jesus was. What did he cry out? He said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. He recognized that he had sinful spiritual leprosy and he needed the Holy God to get away from him because of his corruption. And yet, remarkably, does Jesus depart from us? No, he doesn't, does he? For as Matthew records, Jesus is more than willing, and he then reaches out to us and touches us in our defilement and forgives us of our sin and heals and restores us spiritually. Psalm 103.12 says this, For as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And it's because of this that we can confidently approach God knowing that he's not going to judge us. He's not going to alienate us 
alienate us and kick us out into the leper camp. No, he brings us back in to the kingdom of God. And this leads us to our second point. The healing miracles of Jesus show his authority to cleanse, but they also show his authority to judge. The next healing miracle we see has to do with the centurion and his servant. And it is the remarkable faith of the centurion that leads to this servant's healing. The leper, why was he excluded? Well, he was excluded because of his physical condition. But the centurion was excluded because of his ethnic condition. Right? This man wasn't a Jew. He was a Gentile. Which meant that he was outside of that special blessing of the people of God. See, during this time, not only were Gentiles considered dogs by most of the Jewish people, but it was considered taboo or unclean to go and share a table under that Gentile's roof. You couldn't do that. It was a defiling thing, which is probably why when the centurion approaches, you know, and and Jesus agrees to come to his home, he's like, oh, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that, Jesus. I am not worthy of having you in my home. What an incredible sign of humility that this man has, right? And if that wasn't remarkable enough, look at this man's awareness of who he's dealing with here. Look at verse 8 and 9. These verses show this man's understanding of Jesus' divine authority. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. That's a marvelous faith right there. And we know that this is some marvelous faith, because in verse 10, Jesus, when he hears this, says literally that he marveled at this man's faith. (laughs) He says in verse 10, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. In verses 11 and 12, we find something interesting that would have been a major mic drop moment in this culture. It would have been shocking. What was that? Jesus says that one day Gentiles like this centurion will feast in the kingdom with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, the sons of Abraham, those who thought they would feast with them, would be cast out. Instead, they will be thrown out into outer darkness in that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see then why this was such a shocking statement that Jesus made? It's because the Jews believed in something called Jewish exclusivism. They believed that what would get them into the kingdom was the fact that their DNA matched Abraham's. And Jesus comes along, he's like, you don't get it. It does not work that way. You don't get into the kingdom simply because you're a Jew. The only way you get into the kingdom is if you are the spiritual descendants of Abraham, which means faith. Only the children of faith will enter then the kingdom of heaven. And this idea of faith, like this is something like we naturally actually hate. If you grew up in the church and you hear, oh yeah, you know, you were saved by grace through faith, you got to trust in Jesus, that can kind of become water on the duck's back a little bit. But if you talk to unbelievers, you know what's interesting? When you bring up this idea that, hey, you know what? We are all sinners separated from the love of God. We are under his wrath and we are waiting for that day of wrath. However, there's an out. Jesus died. He became sin. He that knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. And so you tell them that, and it's like, what? I just had this this last week. I was talking with a man who didn't understand the gospel. And it was the same thing. I got to the gospel, and he just had this look like, that's, mm mm-mm. 
Why is that? Because like with the Jews, it offends our sensibilities. That requires humility to say, you know what? There's nothing I can do to get back into the camp. I'm a leper. I'm out here. I'm on my own. There's nothing I can do to get back into God's kingdom. And so it requires humility to recognize that. And this was something that the Jewish people refused to accept. And so consequently, they refused the spiritual healing that they so desperately needed. And so Jesus points out his physical healings were but pointers to the greater spiritual healing that he could provide. However, if you reject that healing, if you refuse to go to Jesus and ask for it, the result is that you will absolutely be met with his divine authority as you will be judged in your sins. Matthew 13, 40 through 43 says this, Just as the weeds are gathered and burnt with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out his kingdom, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Verse 13 says, Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And what happened? This servant was immediately healed. Why? Because of the centurion's faith. His servant was healed. But also, what's remarkable is the centurion's spiritual leprosy that he had himself, that was healed in that moment as well. And if you notice that in all three of these healings, they are full. They are instantaneous. They happen right then and there. It's not like something that takes months for it to finally, you know, kind of slowly kick in. You know, we're working on that back pain. Just, you know, the miracles come and it's slowly seeping in. No. Unlike the modern day faith healers who heal back pain, headaches, and ouchy tum-tums, Jesus' healings were instant. They were on the spot. They were full and final. Jesus healed lepers. Jesus healed the lame. Jesus healed the blind. Jesus healed amputees. When's the last time you've seen a faith healer heal an amputee? No, they just stick with the low-hanging fruit like back pain and migraines because those things aren't measurable. And if you ever see these people trying to heal stuff, they'll move people to the back who actually need to be healed. It's, It's a remarkable, deceiving thing. They'll say that healing takes time. Or, have you heard this before? You could not be healed because you didn't have enough faith. That's what it was. The problem wasn't God's power. It was your your fault because you didn't have enough faith to receive the healing. But hear me when I say this. In the Bible, divinely inspired healing is never contingent upon the recipient's faith. It's not. It's absolutely not. Wait a minute, though, preacher. What about Mark 6, 5? It says that Jesus couldn't heal in Nazareth because of their lack of faith. Hmm, what about, what about that? Gotcha, there, all right. Is that what that verse says? Is that what that verse means? No, it's not. It doesn't mean that at all. And we'll unpack this a little bit more when we get to fellowship and focus, but the short version for now is this. That's not what that verse means. It's actually just a terrible translation. And we know that's the case because we have a parallel verse, right? Because the Gospels are telling a lot of the same stories from different perspectives. And Matthew 13, 58, here's what it says about that. It's a parallel verse. It doesn't say that he couldn't heal, but more that he wouldn't heal. That's a massive difference, right? 
Because so many people will guilt and shame you into saying today, hey, you know what? You know why you're not healed? Because you didn't get right with the Lord, brother. That's the problem. You, if, if you just have enough faith, God will heal you because it's God's desire to heal everybody right now. In, in which Paul says, wait a minute, I had this thorn I asked to be removed three times and God said my grace is, is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so these charlatans don't even come close to the radically, divinely inspired healing power that we see in the New Testament. It's a total joke. They're clowns. Ignore them. Yes, God does heal today. Don't misunderstand me. However, compared to the divinely empowered healing miracles we see in the Bible, today's faith healers are a shallow, pathetic version of it whose only power is to manipulate, not to mend. The final healing miracle that we see is Peter's mother, mother-in-law, who is healed so powerfully that she gets up and immediately starts doing what all wonderful mother-in-laws like to do, which is she starts cooking and makes a wonderful meal for him. And again, this healing, was it spaced out? Did she get healed and she got up and she's like, oh man, I'm so tired, I'm lacking it. No, she had her energy restored even. This was a full healing and all from the touch of Jesus' hand. And while why could Jesus heal? How is it that Jesus could heal? Jesus could heal for one very important reason. Ultimately, Jesus could heal because as this text tells us, he alone was able to take our sins. He alone was able to bear our disease, which leads us to our final point. The healing miracles of Jesus show his authority to cleanse, they show his authority to judge, and they show his authority to bear. Matthew eight sixteen through 17 says this, that even that evening they brought him many who were oppressed by demons. He cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illness and bore our sins. Not only did Jesus heal these three individuals, but as verse 16 tells us, he also healed many. And by that many, that's, that's a lot. It's no understatement there. He healed many people of both spiritual sickness, which is casting out the demons, and physical sickness as well. How? Matthew tells us by quoting the prophet Isaiah, by taking our illness and by bearing our disease. What does this mean? How did Jesus take our illness? How did Jesus bear our disease? Isaiah 53, 4 tells us, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. What is Isaiah 53 talking about? That's what Matthew's quoting here. What's he talking about in Isaiah 53? He's talking about the atonement, right? The cross. For upon the cross, Jesus bore our sins. He suffered in our place. And why? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. That is why we can have healing in Christ. That's why Jesus can heal us. And this is not, though, for a healing for those who try to heal themselves. Jesus suffered and died for us 
so that when we come to him, even back then, as we saw with the temporary healing 2,000 years ago, that was just a foreshadowing of the permanent and final healing that we see here in Isaiah 53. When one day the children of faith will be fully healed, fully restored in Zion, the city of God. This healing is not for those who try to heal themselves through law-keeping. It's not for those who don't think that they need healing, right? You don't get it if you're like, I'm good, I don't need to be healed. You're still in the leper camp. It's for those who come in humility before the Lord with a simple request, like the leper man said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. That's it. In which, praise God, what is Jesus' response every time to that request? I am willing. Be clean. And then he touches us and cleanses us of our sins. And so this is the question we have to ask. Have I come to grace? Have I accepted the grace of God through faith that is necessary for the great physician to begin that healing and cleansing process in my life, which will one day culminate in a total final healing? Do you know that your sins have been covered from the coming future judgment that Jesus speaks of because, not because you did, you know, all the right things, you, you know, you were good. No, but because simply Jesus bore them for you upon the tree. And is your hope in him and the future permanent healing he is bringing when we will one day, oh so very soon, feast in his kingdom at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? This is our hope for healing. Not that our ailments will all be removed in this life. No but to be spared from the coming day of wrath, knowing that the full healing is coming that is promised through the atonement to the children of God. Father, I just pray that we would understand this text better, that we would live by it, and that we would place our hope in it. Lord, there's a lot of false teaching out there on healing. So I ask you to protect your people. Help them not to be spiritually gullible people who believe every claim, because it came from a nice person or a friend or a family member, but to examine, to test the spirits, to see if claims line up with your word, to see if you are actually the spirit behind it. For we know that there are many fallen evil spirits that present themselves as angels of light. And so help us to stand in the truth. Help us not to be deceived. And help us ultimately to hope in Christ in the coming kingdom that is coming so very soon. And so we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing our closing song?